No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. Together, I hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Tonight, we have a special show. Um, it's pre-recorded, so unfortunately, you can't call in. Um, we had to pre-record it uh, due to time constraints uh, for our guest. Uh, our guest tonight is uh, Governor L. Douglas Wilder, the first black elected governor in the United States, and it's part of our series uh, for Black History Month. I'd just like to take a moment before the show starts to talk about black history a bit. Black history is important, I believe, because we weren't taught about it growing up. We were taught about white history in America. And it's, port it's important for all of us to understand the contribution that each of us has made. You know, the author Dan Brown said that history is always written by the winners. When two cultures clash, the loser is obliterated, and the winner writes the history books, books which glorify their own successes and disparage those who have lost. This is what's happened in America, so it's important for us to focus on black history, and that's what we tried to do this month. First, we had the first Sunday in, in February, we had um, Chuck Hicks, who grew up in Bogalusa, Louisiana, during the Civil Rights Movement, and he was at Ground Zero. His house was attacked by the Ku Klux Klan. His father was such an important member of the Civil Rights Movement that there's now a marker in front of that house on the Louisiana Civil Rights Trail. Um, if you miss that show for some reason, we archive it. You should go back and listen to it because it was just an amazing show. And tonight, we have an even equally amazing show with Governor Wilder, who, as I said, was the first black elected governor in the United States, the first mayor of Richmond, served for 16 years in, in the Senate of Virginia in a, in a predominantly white Senate. He was a man who had great courage and great vision, which is always important in leadership. I hope that you can listen to the show and enjoy it. Um, we understand that the Super Bowl is on right now, so the show will rebroadcast 
at 7 p.m. Central Time tomorrow, Monday. So those of you that really didn't get a chance to listen will get a chance to listen. This is an important show. We hope to bring you more Black history in the remainder of the month. We thank you so much for being a listener to Shadow Politics. And at the end of the show, we're going to play a song that I think uh, sums it all up for me. It's uh, Hero by Mariah Carey. And this goes out to all the African-American people who have lived in America for the past 600 years and have helped build what I consider to be the greatest nation in the world. So enjoy. And one last thing before I go, today is Mrs. Brown's birthday. So happy birthday, Mrs. Brown. I would tell you how old she is, but um, she would only censor that. So we'll just say that she's over 21 and we wish her all the best. And we'll see you next week on Shadow Politics. Listen to the show and enjoy. Thank you. We have a great honor today to have uh, Governor Doug Wilder with us. He was the first American, African-American uh, ever elected to the position of governor. Uh, he was the first elected mayor of uh, Richmond, Virginia, and served 16 years in the Virginia Senate. Uh, governor Wilder, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, sir. Well, let me ask you, Governor, uh, first of all, first African-American governor uh, uh, ever elected in the United States. I remember you well. Uh, I worked at the DNC in, in those days with the Gover Democratic Governors Association. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know this, but you're well-loved by Washingtonians. I know that you well, went to Howard I've Law had School. Well, a great deal of opportunity yeah. to learn a little bit about it. I went to Howard University Law School, and I lived there for three years, and I've kept a good relationship uh, with the nation's capital. And I would say that uh, what goes on around the nation is reflected in the nation's capital. I remember a classmate of mine in law school once saying that Washington, D.C. is the showcase of the nation. And he's absolutely right. And for those who represent the city as you do and the capital as you do, you know exactly what I mean. Yeah, it, it actually is our blessing and our curse because it's, it, it really is. We take great pride in it, but it's also the reason that Republicans want to consistently act out so they can get attention. Uh, but let me ask you, uh, first First, to call you a political groundbreaker is an understatement. You you were the first elected African-American uh, governor, a first ever elected mayor in Richmond. Prior to you, mayors were appointed. You served 16 years in the Virginia Senate, which was mostly a white body uh, at the time. Uh, we've had a black president why is it taking us so long? We've only had four elected uh, black governors in the history of the country. After you, there were only three more. Westmore from Maryland being the most recent one uh, just this past uh, November. 
How come we have so many, we have, a, we have many members of Congress, we've had many people at the state level uh, serve in state legislatures. Why is it so hard to elect a black governor, do you think? Well, really, there have only been three, uh, Westmore, prior to him, Patrick, and Boston, and myself. And I think, quite frankly, uh, there are many reasons for it. And I think the first reason is that the persons who are running or who may want to be running uh, might not carry the message or if they have carried the message, uh, haven't understood that you're not going to be elected by Democrats or Republicans, you're going to be elected by the people. And to that extent, you and I said something the other day that someone didn't didn't particularly understand, and this was a person of color, and he said to me, you, you said that you're not African American. I said, no, I'm not. And I said, no, am I black American? Uh, I'm an American, and I think I fit with the description of what the Constitution describes as an American citizen. And he understood it then, and this happened to be a black man that was talking to me about it. And that's the way my campaign has, my campaigns have always been. I don't reach across the aisle. I don't recognize that an aisle exists for division. I don't recognize uh, racial division. I don't recognize... Uh, sexual divisions. Uh, I appointed the first woman of color, I'm the first woman, rather, to VMI board. And they thought I was crazy. You have got to be out of your mind to appoint a woman to be on the board of Virginia Military Institute. Yeah, why? Because he's qualified, and that's the responsibility of the governor to appoint qualified people. And so I think we make a bit too much of race, and yet on occasions, we don't really talk about and deal with the things that we should real deal with as far as race is concerned. And I'm speaking about education, K through 12. I'm speaking about historical black colleges and universities. I'm speaking about crime in neighborhoods that are infested with uh, criminal behavior and how to deal with it and how not to condone it and to go along with it. So every number can play and everyone should be a part of well, I think that's that's actually a wonderful sentiment, uh, Governor. And, and let me ask you, um, given, um, well, let's move on to, to what's going on today. Uh, we just heard the President of the United States uh, give a State of the Union message where he was heckled by the crowd. Uh, is politics... Politics has always been a rough business, but is it less civil today than it was uh, when you were uh, intimately involved in all of it? Has it become less civil, do you think? Well, less civil to the extent of uh, expressed civility <laughs> or oh, yeah. expressed lack of civility. Uh, civil means to uh, be according uh, the proper acceptance or rejection in terms of getting along whether you agree with the point or not. You don't disagree to the extent of being disagreeable. And so what happened with the particularly one 
person in the audience that heckled and hollered out reminded me of what the person from South Carolina said when Barack Obama was speaking. You yeah. lied. You lied. Right. You don't do that. You're not elected to do that. And so it's the fault of the people that tolerate that type of behavior. So that type of behavior is reflective, not just of the person who said it, but those people who allow that person to be representative of them. Yes, it is more more divisive. It's unfortunately more influenced by money. I think Citizens United was one of the worst cases ever decided by the United States Supreme Court. When I was mm -hmm. in law school, I learned and thought that a, a, a corporation was not a person. And yet, to the contrary, that's what the Supreme Court ruled in Citizens United, which means what? Money, money, money. And that's what controls politics and governance today in America. Yeah. Uh, we certainly saw that when I was at the DNC. Uh, I worked with the Democratic Governors Association. Uh, along on, on, on the staff when I was there was also former Virginia Governor uh, Terry McAuliffe and former Virginia Governor Mark Warner. Uh, yes. But that's what we did. We did fundraising, and we saw we saw the corrupting effect that it had uh, in those days. And I agree with you; it's only gotten worse. Let me ask you about something that that really bothered me as a lifelong Democrat. Um, the DGA spent millions of dollars uh, trying to help the candidacy of Trump election deniers in the primaries in order to beat them in, in the, the election uh, because they thought they'd be easier to beat in the election. They did this with Dan Cox in Maryland, who, who ultimately lost against uh, Wes Moore, but they also did it in Virginia. They spent $300,000, a group of Democratic group, on a guy named Jer Jerome Bell, who uh, uh, ultimately lost uh, the election, but the Republican was ultimately elected in the end. Do you find this as cynical as I found it? I thought it was just a, a horrible thing for Democrats to be doing. Is it all come about winning? Is that all that's important anymore is winning? <laughs> well, it gets back to Citizens United again. Yes, yeah, sorry about that, Governor. This is, a, this is a problem with uh, uh, technology sometimes. We lost you. But anyway... Um, uh, as we were saying, yeah, the DGA, them putting money into Republican races uh, to make it easier to win in the, in the uh, general election. Do you think that we should be doing things like that, winning at any cost? No, to the contrary. And that's one of the reasons I keep saying that Citizens United has to be corrected. Now, how do you do it? If you've already ruled yeah. as high court that a corporation is uh, is a person, uh, how do you change that? And I can say this, I don't know. unless there is I don't know. It's a very some tough control and, and, on the you know, I think, spent. yeah, I agree with you. We don't have trouble. I also think, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I also think that if you uh, were to change uh, 
the term of a congressman to four years, uh, you would do, you know, you would serve the country better because they uh, wouldn't have to be raising money from the day they were elected. You know, the day after their election, they start raising money again. So well, what do you think I, I of that? that to you, I am now a convertant uh, to term limits. I have not been. But when you take senators or congressmen who go there and stay forever and ever and ever, and they get so inured to the process, particularly with what you got now, with they can create their own PACs. And you know who's going to be funding those PACs. Uh, you take right. like if a health care bill comes up, or, oh, the pharmaceuticals. If you've got a drug bill, any kind of bill like that that comes up, there will be at least three lobbyists assigned to every member of the Congress, whether in the Senate or whether in the House. Now, where does that money come from, and why is all that money being spent? I think we need to revise uh, the amount of money that's being, that's being spent on elections. I think we need to improve the... the the times for people to be able to, to vote, to absentee balloting needs to be expanded and to the extent of not requiring people to have to be in person to, to get there and to wait in line half the day. Who's going to pay for the children to babysitting? Who's going to pay for the people to take time off from work to do it? And so unless you get some control on money in politics, we're going to have troubles. How about public financing? Should we do public financing? Should all that no, I don't believe in that. Because I'm not going to. Yeah. I don't want my tax dollars spent on people who have no chance at all to win and have no reason running. In terms of, I think it ought to be my choice. If you're going to spend my money on an election, let it be somebody that I want you to spend it on. So how about a how about a limit? You know, we have the FEC, but as you well know, there are many loopholes. There are enough loopholes to drive a truck through in those those laws. But what about a law that says anybody, anywhere, corporation, individual, anybody can give money, but there's a limit of $100? Well, there were limits. We had limits. And when I ran for I know. the short period of time that I was running for president and announced, there were limits. As to what could right, be contributed so by anybody, so why can't we go back to that? Yeah, I, I don't know, and and certainly when I worked, that one of the things I did for the DNC was FEC compliance, and yes, there are there are limits, but you know, we 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 got around a lot of those things. We 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 created non-federal money, so we could spend lots of money on on elections that weren't weren't federal elections. Well, where is the money coming? We need from? to close the loophole. The money is not coming from the average voter. No, and it's you not. You and I know that. The money is coming yeah. from those persons who have an interest, and their interest is yeah. being served. Unfortunately, there are some people who are beholden to that money, and they follow the dictates of those persons who contribute that money. Well, absolutely. You can't take a, uh, $50,000 for somebody and then not pick up the phone when they call. You well, know, you don't we pick it up. Oh, you don't pick it up. If you don't pick it up, you're going out of there. 
<laughs> right. Because exactly. next, your next election, that person will have $100,000 going to somebody against you. Exactly. And they worry about that just as much, right? They, they worry about that just as much. A, a dear old friend of mine uh, that I worked with, Mark Warner, who was governor of Virginia and then a senator, still a senator, we had a really hard time getting him on our statehood bill because the NRA threatened to put money against him. If you, you know, in Virginia, guns are a big, a big deal, as you well know. And, uh, and, and he was Warner, just afraid. Mark Warner was sorry. Be, Mark would be one of the first to tell you that uh, he owes his political fortunes to me as I helped him get known. I helped him get started and I helped him get elected. Uh, and yet, uh, I, I, and today we are good friends. I would say this, though, though you had a hard time getting him to do it, I think he eventually saw the light. Yeah, he did eventually see the light. And he signed on. And I would say that you've helped a lot of people, uh, Governor. Not I only mentioned that. I only mentioned that because mm -hmm. it was brought up. But a lot of people helped yeah, me. Yeah, of course. But a lot of people of helped course. me. And I would not have been elected to anything but for people who believed that I was for them and for the purposes of good government. But weren't you, uh, uh, didn't, weren't, didn't you only serve one term because of term limits in Virginia? Yes, you can Don't only serve one, one term. On that's, a, that's the only thing you can do in Virginia. You can serve one well, term. And you can come back. Right? After you know, you yeah. can't succeed yourself. You can you cannot succeed yourself. So it's one term. No, McAuliffe tried to do that, didn't he? He tried to come back. Uh, well, yeah, not to succeed himself, but he wanted to create right. what they had in some states that I described as leapfrogging. Are uh, you the governor this time? Uh, I'm, I, and when you step out, I'll step in. And after you, uh, after you serve your four terms. For four years, I'll come back and serve another four. They had that in some states, and it didn't didn't work too well. Some states that are very very close in terms of geography to Virginia, we didn't follow that course, and still we don't. Uh, let me ask you: When you were mayor of Richmond, um, by the way, you got seventy nine percent of the vote. You, you you've always been a wildly popular politician in Virginia. But when you were mayor, you were in a group called uh, uh, Mayors Against uh, Illegal Guns, Mayors Against Illegal Gun Coalition. We have so many illegal guns in Washington, D.C. We see children. You know, we had a 14-year-old shoot a professional football player. We had kids shooting kids. In Virginia, of course, you had the horrible situation of a six-year-old shooting his teacher. What can we? Any suggestions on what we can do to get these guns off the streets? Well, first of all, I was elected mayor at large, and that was the first elected mayor at large in yep. years, many, many years. Um, and then when I was in the legislature, I put forth the very first one gun a month bill that was passed in the legislature and that this current legislature has killed it. One gun a month to stop the proliferation because what was happening, we were having 
all of the guns in Virginia being purchased and bought in exchange for drugs that were coming along the eastern seaboard uh, from the mm -hmm. northern, northern east, northeast states. And so people were coming down here buying truckloads of guns, carloads of guns. Sure, yes, you have that. Then in addition, you have the spread of the drugs in terms of guns in terms of crimes. And unless you get some reasonable gun control measures, that proliferation won't cease. Yeah, we we, we certainly it's certainly been a something that Congress hasn't been able to attack uh, uh, effectively. Uh, One other the thing also did, I wanted to add, yeah. if I could, we did when I was mayor what we call community policing. The police officers lived in the community. They didn't have to come to the community. They lived there. This was put forth by a former chief of police uh, in, who went to Washington, D.C. Uh, he helped me put forth the chief of police assigning people to live at the various precincts. Rather than call 911, you call the number of that precinct captain, who you knew. When I was mayor, the chief of police that I had was Rodney Monroe, who's now in Charlotte, North Carolina. When we would go through the city, people would welcome him, love him, and to see him, sometimes I would say, it looks like you're the mayor, <laughs> rather than me. Yeah. But the point is, police were not viewed as enemies of the people. And they should not be viewed that way today. Yeah, we certainly have seen. Uh, we've tried community policing in D.C., and we we try to encourage that. Uh, and we've certainly seen uh, a horrible turn of events with uh, this terrible situation with uh, Tyree Nichols. I know that that you tweeted out about it on your uh, Twitter yeah. page, and. You know, we've all, you know, we've all uh, uh, been heartbroken by, by. But see, when uh, you have a unit, uh, when you have that Scorpion unit created, it was almost as if these, this was a unit with, that was against the people. You can't start yeah. off expecting that unit to be successful when they're not interested in success. They're interested in being considered the bad guys and the bullies. Just the name itself, the Scorpion unit ill-conceived, yep. and unfortunately resulting in things that will have a disastrous effect for years. Absolutely. and But I will say, I think as you've already said, that the chief of police did step up to the plate there uh, and make some hard Ricky. decisions. And, yeah, and we hope that, we hope that, that continues. Uh, let me ask you to go back a ways. Uh, you were sergeant in the Army. Thank you for your service. You received a bronze star for bravery. Uh, you fought in a war that was pretty unpopular, uh, ultimately unpopular, although we, we do respect and honor all the men that served us in, in that conflict. Uh, what do you think about Ukraine? Uh, are we involved enough in what's going on in Ukraine? Uh, should we be more involved? The question is, what do you mean by involved? <laughs> One, <clears throat> well, are we sending yeah, enough I mean, money? 
Wait, yeah. let's, let's start off with this now. One, I don't think there are too many people who would disagree with you that you would, if you were to say, or if I were to say, that Ukraine has been identified for years as one of the most corrupt governments in the world. You, yeah. you, you would agree with that. Now, that, yes, being case, that being the case, is our involvement going to be just continuing to send money and money and money and money? If so, it's a never-ending process. And secondly, or, or thirdly, what is the goal? What do we want to achieve? Are we going to send our boys and, and girls and, and men and women to fight a war in Ukraine? No. Should they be called upon to go and fight a war in Ukraine? No. Then what do you think we need to do uh, to bring about victory? I think we need to bring about the process of having Putin and Vladimir, uh, not Vladimir, uh, Walensky, uh, to, to, mm -hmm. to meet and to talk and to determine what it is that would be necessary to end the war. I haven't heard anybody talk about that yet. I've not heard anything uh, put to, no. on the table to say, what will it take to end this war? Putin's not going to win it the way he's going. Walensky's uh, not going to win it the way he's going. So who loses? The people lose, and we're continuing to send dollars after dollar after dollar, and that in and of itself is not going to win it. So we've got to have some understanding that there has to be cessation of hostility. Yeah, it certainly was our problem. Incidentally, I said Walensky, I meant, I meant Zelensky. Right, I know, I know. It's it's hard to keep them all straight, but you know that uh, it certainly seemed to be our problem in in Vietnam too. That we were advisors, and then we sent weapons, and then we sent troops, and we gradually got sucked into a conflict that that you know uh, exactly. didn't seem winnable. In but the, see, mindful. In you got to be mindful of this one thing too, not just one thing: the industrial military complex. And whose interest is it to continue to fight wars and to wage wars? These armchair quarterbacks who make millions and billions of dollars out of America being involved in, in wars. Now, if, if what's going on in Ukraine is so bad, where is other world support? Oh, the Germany is going to send a few leopard tanks. Oh, Great Britain is going to weigh in to provide some degree of intelligence. Are you going to do what we've been asked to do? If not, why not? You are more affected by what's going on than the U.S. is. And so until we have that degree of understanding at a worldwide <clears throat> organizational effort on behalf of those who believe in a free world, that is something that is going to weigh heavily on us and affect us for a long time. Well... Let me ask you to put your professor hat on for for a second, because I know you're uh, uh, now at VCU, Virginia yeah. Commonwealth University, in the political oh. science department, and I have a master's degree in political science, and we see wow. that the the country is really divided, and that that people, you know, we have this consolidation. You talk about the military-industrial complex. We have this consolidation in business, too. We're, we're worried. Some of us are worried that Walmart and, and Amazon will own everything someday. 
Karl Marx, you know, Karl Marx would have said this is an inevitability of democratic capitalism. When you have capitalism, you you consolidate and, and ultimately the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we're on a path that, that that's inevitable for the United States? No, I don't think it's inevitable because the people are always in charge. The people need to express that they are in charge and to show <clears throat> through those people that they send to represent them <clears throat> what they want. And when we speak of this industrialized um, military complex, who makes the money? Who gets rich? Yeah. Who's building more planes, building more ships, building more technology? Oh, we hate China, yet we have billions of dollars being spent in China for the production of goods in China to be sold in the U.S. So you, yeah. as, as the Indians was, as people have quoted Indians uh, year before saying, some people speak with a crooked tongue. Yeah, exactly. And and unfortunately they made the big mistake of opening of opening their arms to those people and inviting them in. They should they, they should have told us to leave right away, I think. Uh but um uh yeah, I think you're right. I think as long as the people uh vote. But you know, I live in I live in Washington D C which yeah. is uh and represent people in Washington DC. It's the heart of our democracy, and yeah. less than 50% of the people that live here show up to vote. What do you yeah. think we can do? What can we do to get more people to vote? Show and them understand that, that that's their power. Show them that their vote matters, one. But making the voting process less onerous, making it less burdensome, making it easier in terms of showing reasons why they should vote. All right, if you vote for such and such a thing, this is going to change. And what am I mean by that? If you vote for such and such, if you go to the polls and vote for such and such a thing, or vote for me, not forget such and such a thing, if you vote for me, I will be able to encourage others to bring about better housing in your community. If you vote for me, I will be able to bring about better education in schools in your community. Now, the next person should come up and say, all right, this person told you that he would vote. If you voted for him, he would do all these kinds of things. He's been there. She's been there. You've not gotten those things. We need to remove those who are not there and put people there who can show the general public and the people that voting is a process for change. And no, and that's why voting is not a permanency in terms of saying, well, well, I voted. Well, what did you vote for? I voted for an individual, or did you vote for a principle? And that's what I think voting needs to be about. Well, do you think that we have a problem because you know my grandmother voted in every election? She got dressed up. She went out. She voted. And the reason she voted, she was very frank about it, was that when she was a young girl, my grandmother was born in the late 1800s, when she was a young girl, she didn't have the right to vote. And right. as soon as she got the right to vote, she, you know, she, she was in the struggle, and they went out and voted. Is that the, the problem? Uh, you know, and, and more important than that, is, is black history an important thing? For us to have, this is Black History Month. 
Is this important to us? I think it's important because my children, who are now adults in their 20s and 30s, late 20s and 30s, they believe the civil rights movement happened 500 years ago. You know, they, they, even though they're all college educated, they've all studied, they really act like this is ancient history. And it certainly is not ancient history. And we need to learn from it. Do you think, do you agree with that? Do you think Black History Month is important and that, that, you know, we need more of it? Well, regardless of what Governor DeSantis says. Speaking of grandparents, my father's parents, my grandparents, were slaves. Yeah. yeah. Now, just, yeah. just let that sink in for a moment. Uh, yeah. I am one generation removed from slavery. Let that yeah. sink in for a moment. What do you mean, you're one generation removed from slavery? I mean what I say. And yet, I had uncles who prospered. Uh, a, a son of slaves went on to get a medical degree. And, yeah. and he made it with, with little or nothing. Uh, and he didn't worry about what people said he couldn't do. He went to show what he could do. Uh, I had people who believed in education being that being the knife that cuts through the pie of social obstruction. And we'll still need to have that knife to cut through that the crust of that pie of, of social obstruction. And so people, I'm not interested in black history. I'm interested in American history. And if you told the full picture of American history, we would know that uh, black history is American history to the extent that it shouldn't be studied in a month or a month set aside for it. As Dick Gregory used to say to me, Doug, you know they gave us the shortest month in the year to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> so they're still yeah. shortening us out. But my concern is that who is going to teach American history? Who is going to be teaching black history? Why do we have to continue to have historical black colleges and universities suffering uh, with enrollment and financial burdens. Why do we have the mismanagement of funds allocated for education? And then are we really committed to making, as Reagan called it, this shining example on the hill, uh, city on the hill, for who? For all people, for all of America's people. Oh, it's one thing to say you get the Confederate statues moved. So they're gone. But what yeah. did you put in place? What's in place of those statues? What's in place of the monuments? What's in place of the constructed hindrances to people feeling able to have an opportunity to participate? We have living relics in terms of representation. When you have things that are going, look in your Congress, you've got guys sits up there, lies, and says every damn thing that's wrong that, and should, should no way be in Congress. Yeah, he's there. It doesn't make any sense. They know he's lied. They know. And so you're going to wait till the next election before you do anything about it? Doesn't make any sense at all. The man is a fraud. Should that person yeah. be sitting in your Congress passing judgment on the very questions that you and I are speaking of today? Absolutely not. Well, that brings up a, a, another issue, which is 
uh, you know, is somebody who was a state senator, lieutenant governor, governor and mayor. You've done the whole, you've run the whole gamut in the in the Democratic Party. Is Donald Trump, is Trump and the Trump people that are following him, are they about to take the Republican Party apart? Do you think, do you think, you know, we saw Mitt Romney the other night uh, say something to uh, the congressman that you were talking about. And, and it, 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 is there going to be this terrible upheaval, do you think, in, in the Republican Party between people that uh, support Donald Trump and people that don't? The people that the, the president is calling mega Republicans, mega Republicans, uh, uh, you think you're going to tear apart the Republican Party? That will be this era of Trump, and that too will disappear. Uh, it's a matter of progression. It's a matter of what do we do next. Uh, Trump it will have influence. He does have influence. Uh, there are people who believe in what he's doing. That will come as the wind, and it will go as the wind. The question is, what is it replaced with? And what are you putting in place of it? How are you addressing the concerns of the people? We're not dealing with Trump or Biden. I mean, or, or Biden. Or, or you're dealing with Santos. Or, or are you dealing with uh, DeSantis? You're dealing with the American people. So the, the question isn't who is speaking for themselves, but who is speaking for the people of America. And the people are always ahead of leaders. It takes the leaders a long time to find that out. Well, you know, and maybe this will be a positive thing, right? We saw, we, you and I both witnessed in the Democratic Party some tough years. Uh, the first guy I ever worked for was Jimmy Carter. And after that, we certainly went through some tough years with, with Walter Mondale and Dukakis and other candidates that we couldn't get elected. And then the party shifted. It shifted and we got Bill Clinton was a little more conservative of the Democrat. You think that'll happen in the Republican Party? Will the Republican Party shift more to the center? Yeah, the, the, the party, the parties will shift to whatever is better for the parties in terms of electability. And so it's not a question of conservative or moderate or liberal. It'll be a question of what do I need to do to get elected? And I think the mood of the, of the American people is not far right nor far left. But it's what's in the best interest of all of the people, to the extent that those issues are addressed. That's what we do at the Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. And that's what the students come to hear. That's what they leave to, uh, to, to carry forth. And I teach them and tell them that they don't need to wait to be leaders. They're leaders now. And they need to express what they've learned what they need to learn and be there, be demand what is right and criticize what is wrong and not be afraid to do it. Well, I think that's very good advice. You know, I've always felt that great leaders, more than accomplishing things, uh, encourage those around them to accomplish things. I yes. think a great leader is inspirational, and you certainly have been that, sir. Uh, and time, it's sir, great and that, very much. No, that's not kind at all. That's just the truth. And and um, you, you know, it's great to see that you're still 
in service, you know, and, 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 and by, by teaching children, teaching young people at, at DCU, which is a great school, by the way. I've had several well, friends. Well, let me tell you something. That the, people that we, the people that we are teaching are not just children. You'd be surprised at the people who are in mid-careers who've had to stop yeah. out of school to raise children, to pay a mortgage on a home, to be able to go to school now. And so I spoke about that this morning. I'm lucky. Yes, I'm 92 years old. And I'm fortunate to, as I say, every day is a good day for me. People say, well, how are you today? I say, I woke up. And I say that whenever they ask the question. So education is a perennial thing. It separates and it evolves. But to the extent that we can continue to make Americans understand that we can be that shining city on the hill, but we must continue to understand that all people should be considered Americans if they are the citizens that we say they are. Let's exalt it. Let's make certain that we brand it and continue it. Well, uh, by the way, I should point out that you're a young 92 since you just had a birthday in January. So we wish you a happy, happy birthday. And uh, let me just finish uh, with uh, one last question and say, if there was one thing that you could do to make politics better in America, what what would it be, uh, Governor? Get Get money out of it. And that citizens invented bad, not be concerned about uh, how many wars we can fight. But the one thing that I would encourage leaders to do would be listen to the people. Never stop listening to the people. More importantly, after listening, show them that you heard them. Well, well let me ask you. Is there a website that people can go to to find out more about you or find out more about VCU and what you're doing down there? Do you want to give our listeners a website or anything? Yes, that would be wildervisions.com. Wildervisions.com. Well, Governor Doug Wilder, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I know that Thank you. Good to be with yeah, you. The, ple- the pleasure Bye-bye. is mine, sir. Bye bye. Thank you now. Bye bye. Thank you.